Church life is very complicated. Across the range and the sphere of all the different things that we do, across all the ministries, the jobs, the tasks, across the responsibilities that different people hold, church life is complicated. If, if, if I were to write up a list for you of the, the things that happen across church life, we'd be here for quite a while. The jobs that the staff have to do, the tasks, the ministries they run, the people they engage with and need to help, the administration that happens, the wardens. Uh, I was just chatting a little while ago with one of our wardens about the, the complexities of the toilet block build and the ordering of parts and the, all the different moving pieces, the finances, the IT requirements, all the complexities that our leaders face as they help church members to grow as Christians, as they put out fires and encourage those who are down, strengthen the weak, look after the needy. Uh, Here's a picture. Let me show you this picture. This is from a few years ago now. This was just a list we came up with of ministries. This isn't kind of jobs and tasks and things that need to happen. This is just our ministries. Some of them existing, some of them dreamed, some of them now closed. Let alone everything else that happens the phone calls, the emergencies. Now, against that backdrop of complexity, there's been a push in churches over the last few years to simplify, to make church life more focused, to to find that which is essential and necessary and pare back absolutely everything else. They are lessons really learned from the business world, I think, taking Uh, the stories of the really most successful businesses and trying to apply those principles to church. Now, a few years ago, the staff team at our church, we were reading uh, a book called Good to Great, which is kind of one of those. It's how do you take your organisation from where it is, which may be good, and turn it into a great organisation. We were engaging with material by a guy called Andy Stanley, right, who's a minister at a very large church, again, similar. And both of these resources encouraged that move to simplify to find what is it that you as a church are uniquely good at, uniquely passionate about, and uniquely resourced to do. And just focus on that. Find what it is that is at the core of your strategy and get rid of everything else, basically, and just do that. Be ruthless. Now, in some ways, it's very appealing, right? The thought of just culling back all of this complexity of of divesting ourselves of ministries and of the jobs to be done and the administration and to just be able to focus on, I don't know, the the word and prayer, right? Wouldn't that be fantastic? It would make my life a whole lot more simple, that's for sure. However, as we consider the marks of the Christian church, it raises the question then, are there some things that are irreducible? Are there some things that are essential that we must have if we are to be the true church of Jesus? Is our ecclesiology irreducible? Is our church life at some level has to be complicated because there are some things that we cannot get rid of? Now, I've done a bit of a survey, jumped around a bit through the Bible, and I have found 10 things that I think are essential. We can't get rid of them. We must have these. Now, I'm not talking about church as in the Sunday meeting. These aren't things that we have to have on our Sunday 
you know, 8 o'clock, 9.30, whatever. These are, for us as the body, for us as the church, not just in our Sunday gathering, things that must be present, must be defining, must be characteristics of us. I've got 10 of them. And really the sermon today is running through those 10. Now, the first uh, five, the first five are really a command. They are things that we are told to be doing or to be. And the second five are descriptions. They're, they're pulled out of the pictures in the Bible of the church. Are you ready? Now we're going to do a whole bunch of Bible jumping. This is one of those weeks where it's very helpful to have your Bible handy and to be taking notes. I recognize that a lot of the work I'm going to do today is going to be just jumping to verses. And it's a little bit dangerous because it's possible to take them out of context. So you make sure you're writing down the verses as we go. And maybe throughout this week, you'll be able to take some time throughout a couple of days to go back and revisit those verses, read through them, make sure you're listening to God's word directly that way. All right, five commands about what we as a church ought to be like. Number one, love one another. Love one another. It's in John chapter 13 and verses 34 and 35. John 13, 34 and 35. As Jesus was speaking to his disciples, laying down the framework of what it would be to be his body, he said these words, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. It makes perfect sense. Jesus is saying, as I am, you are to be. I love you, you love you, right? But verse 35 helps it just set how important this is. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the mark of being a follower of Jesus. This is the defining characteristic of being one of his. This is the defining characteristic of being his disciples together. Love one another. If we love, then we are identified as the followers of the one who loves. That is Jesus. Not, uh, not roses and chocolate sort of love. Right? Not, um, we, we all have to be romancing and wooing each other. But the sacrificial love, the sort of love that Jesus showed, the love where he would go to the cross for us. And really, if we don't have love, the rest is pointless. In 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, as Paul is talking about the gifts and the use in the body and how to build each other up. The very heart of it in chapter 13, right? You, you can have the greatest gifting in the world. You can be spectacular and marvelous. But if you have not love, if you're not doing it out of a desire for good for someone else, then it's pointless. The very first irreducible complexity, the very first thing that must define us is that we love one another. And the second really is a lot like it. The second is that we care for one another. That is, that our love is practical, that it works itself out in us looking after one another. Uh, I'm going to Galatians. I'm going to read a couple of different verses in Galatians. Uh, so if you're in John, you're going to go a few, few books towards the back of your Bible. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. Paul also rewrites this. Therefore... As we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Right, we, we are to care for everyone as we have opportunity, and in particular, we are to care for God's body. 
chapter 5 and verse 13 in Galatians 5.13. You were called to be free, brothers and sisters. You have freedom. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. If the first characteristic is that we love one another, the second is that that love flows out in, well, practical care, looking after each other. Chapter 6 and verse 2 in Galatians, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Care for each other. Now, I think for us, there there are two kind of extremes that we might find ourselves in when it comes to this sort of practical love. Some of us don't care for other people. That's a problem. Some of us are too busy concerned for our own problems and we never lift our head up to see who around us needs help. However, some of us are at the opposite extreme and never ask for help. We mustn't believe the lie that our culture speaks and that Satan speaks that we can do it alone, that I am enough. I mean, that's our culture, right? Our home is our castle. As long as I can provide for myself, I'm doing the right thing. We are God's body. The second marker is that we care for each other. The third one, the third irreducible complexity is that we meet together. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Now we're heading towards the back of the Bible now. Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 24 and 25. The writer says this. I love, I really love this verse. Uh, Listen to verse 24. Let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. How good is that? To provoke in each other love and good works. But he continues, how are we going to do that? Not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, the second thing that we cannot lose is this desire to gather and to then spur each other on, to provoke love and good deeds, to encourage or, or to strengthen each other particularly as we see the day approaching. To to remind one another that Jesus is coming back. What a great thing to do this week. What a great thing to do today. Sermon finishes, service finishes. What a great aim for church every week. To remind someone that Jesus is coming back again. Any moment. He's coming back. We got, where's the passion, people? We need to get excited and we need to get a little bit anxious. Jesus is coming back. We need the urgency of his return on our minds and on our hearts. Why don't you make it your aim after church today to remind someone of that? Provoked to love and good works. We're to love one another, care for one another, meet together. Number four, We are to make disciples. Come all the way back to Matthew's Gospel. The very first book in the New Testament. And we're going to the last chapter, Matthew chapter 28. As Jesus was speaking some of his last words to his disciples, he commissioned them. He sent them on a task. And the task was this, Matthew 28 and verse 18. Jesus came near and he said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. To be Jesus' church is to make disciples. Now, this includes evangelism. This includes seeking the lost, those who are not followers of Jesus, and bringing them into the family by sharing the gospel with them. But it doesn't stop there. Discipleship begins with evangelism and continues with the same gospel building up and maturing God's people. Really, it's why our our little church's tagline is disciples making disciples of Jesus. That's who we are. That's what we're on about. That is an irreducible complex. It's very complex. You've got to take people from all sorts of situations and backgrounds, some with really messed up lives, someone with no knowledge at all of God, and bring them into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, and then help establish them and equip them and mature them that they themselves will become servants of Jesus. It's complicated, it's hard, but we must do it. We are commanded to love one another, care for one another, meet together, make disciples. And number five is one that perhaps you might not be expecting. I wonder if you can have a guess at what the fifth marker, the fifth thing that we are commanded to do as God's church is. Now I'm heading to Colossians chapter 3. You can go and look that up if you like while you have a moment to guess. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, the fifth thing that we are commanded to do is to sing. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Now, note two things in this verse. The first is that God's word is something that we speak to each other. It's not just the work of the preacher. It's not just the work of the Bible study group leader. It's not just the work of the youth group leader, whoever it might be. It is the job that we each do for each other. And I really hope, and I I pray this for you, that that's one of your aims, particularly for church, particularly for our gathered time, is that you are seeking to speak God's word to someone else that you are seeking to take conversation beyond the mundane and the everyday and to, well, with wisdom, teach and admonish one another. But note that here it happens in song, through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as we sing to God with gratitude in our heart. In in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, there's a very similar verse, Ephesians 5, 19, speaking to one another, in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It ties again these three things, being wise and speaking to one another God's word, singing and praising our God and thankfulness for all that he has given us. Music is very powerful. Music stirs emotions, music worms itself into our ears and minds. Music is such a great tool for proclaiming the gospel to one another. I think it's been one of the really difficult things of this past season 
with isolation and with restrictions, even when we've gathered at church to not be able to sing, it's, it's, it's felt wrong. It has felt like something is missing. And I take it this is why. We keep having music to at least be able to reflect on it. And I hope and trust that uh, you're taking time to, to engage in some great songs as well. Uh, I heard of one family just this week. It was so lovely to hear of them spending time as a family. A couple of them could play instruments and they sang some songs and fantastic. Well, those are five commands of things that we really can't do away with. We, we cannot reduce the complexity of church life to remove those things from our midst. They are necessary. Now, I've got five more that aren't necessarily commanded in quite the same way, but they are described. The early church is, is described in these terms and they are things that I think we also, therefore, are part of the irreducible complexities of what church life ought to be like. Four of them come from that passage in Acts chapter 2. That was our our first Bible reading, Acts chapter 2, and verse 42, really all four are in that one verse, right? As, As these new converts are gathering, as the church is starting and the apostles are establishing them, chapter chapter 2, verse 42 of Acts, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, four things that were absolutely essential to what they were doing. The apostles' teaching. Friends, the Word of God must be at the heart of all that we do. It must be. It is what teaches us, what feeds us, what nourishes us. It's what we use to build each other up. The Word of God, as the apostles have handed it down, their teaching. And I don't just mean the sermon. Okay, The sermon's a part of it, sure. A sermon is a great moment in the week to be fed. But if that's all it is, man, I'd go hungry of one meal a week. No, it must be something that we speak to each other as well. That we are always seeking this opportunity to bring God's word to bear. It requires us to know it. Perhaps even to memorize parts of it. That would be a good spiritual discipline. To ourselves be reading and dwelling in it. To ourselves be taught and fed by God. That we in turn might do it for others. To be devoted to study God's word. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. A fellowship's a strange word, isn't it? It's one of those words that I think we kind of have an intuitive, vague sense of what it means without really knowing. Does it mean right Friday fellowship where we get together and play some games and have some food? Does it mean we had some fun together? We had good fellowship? Does it mean we sang really good songs? The dictionary has an interesting definition of it. A group of people meeting to pursue a shared interest or aim. A group of people meeting together to pursue a shared interest or aim. Now, that's a good definition, isn't it? They shared fellowship. They shared partnership. They shared together pulling to build up the body. Gathering, not as a social club, although it may have been very delightful, not for entertainment, although I tell you what, some of the stories that get told are brilliant. No, but gathering for this common aim, to see Christ's body built up. They gathered for the apostles' teaching, for fellowship. They gathered for the breaking of bread. Here's another one that I, would you have included in the list of things that must happen? 
Now, some have suggested this is the Lord's Supper, right? That, that communion is therefore one of the essential things, and if we're not doing communion, well, then we're not really doing church. Uh, and while that may be true, I'm not saying it is, but while that may be true, I don't think it's what this verse is about. So if you come down to verse 46, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all people. I think in these verses, what's on view is they ate together. <laughs> That's just, they were having meals They broke bread every day. They were so enmeshed in each other's lives that they were eating together. I think that's all it is. Interesting to think of that as something that is irreducible, something that we must be doing together. And I take it that it's because of the benefits, the power, the effect that eating together has. Some of the best conversations I ever have are over a meal. It just, it gives you time. It gives you an opportunity to be doing something together and then you can talk through it. Just uh, yesterday, I, I was having lunch with a couple of guys and rode. We, it went for an hour and a half and we talked about all sorts of things across the rain, that time of that lunch. Breaking bread together. Prayer, devoted to prayer. We need to pray more. I don't think there's really any argument about that. We, It's an indictment on us, really, that we don't. Personally, I've spoken with so many of our church who reflect that their prayer lives really could be better. Corporately, we've made some few futile attempts at doing some prayer things together. Where is our dependence on God? I love this description of praying in 1 Thessalonians. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 16 to 18. As he says this, see to it that no one, uh, where are we, 16, rejoice always, he says. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. <laughs> if someone asks you, what's God's will for your life? I wonder where you'd go. Ah, oh, well, I've got to do this or those plans or I've got to know. God's will is that you would rejoice, pray and give thanks. We need to be people of prayer. 2021, we're setting aside for our church as a year of prayer. So many of our our ministries, so many of our tasks, so many of our gatherings are going to be focused and dedicated to praying together. More on that in coming weeks. And then the last one, the tenth, the very last one of these markers is right back in Ephesians chapter 5. Sorry, chapter 4, right back in our passage that we've been studying for the last few weeks. Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12. See, the very last one of these markers is that the church is full of equipped people who serve. Ephesians 4 and verse 11, God, Jesus himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? Equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we reach maturity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. The final marker is that by God's gifts, the people, the teachers, the trainers, the leaders, we as a church, all of us together, are equipped to serve, to build up the body, that we might reach maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, I'm trying to work out how to finish this sermon. I recognize it's a little bit of a sort of a teaching sermon rather than a go and do kind of sermon. And I thought I'd finish it with just how I reacted to that list. Oh, there's so much. There's so many things that we as a church must be doing. There's such a great burden on me, on the leaders, on the staff, on us as church members. But you know what? Even as I felt that burden, I was reminded of Acts chapter 6. So let's finish in there by way of illustration. Come back to Acts chapter 6, where we see what happens at this point early in the church, where that sort of burden to be able to accomplish all these different things was being felt by a few, and what it is that happened. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? In the midst of all the ministry they were doing, a little bit of administration was going astray, a few people were feeling left out. The twelve, the leaders, summoned the whole community of disciples and said, it wouldn't be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the company. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicolaus, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. I love this little example that the burden doesn't fall on just one little group. The body is needed. In this moment where they're saying, well, there are irreducible complexities. We have to care for our widows. We have to care for one another. It was point number two. Well, they, I don't think they had point number two, but anyway, right? we have to do this thing, but, but we can't do it all. If we expect a small group of our church to do it all, our, our Bible study group leaders, our youth group leaders, our parish council, our wardens, our staff, if we expect just that one small subset to do all of this, then friends, I think we're going to collapse. Now what we need is the whole body, joined together, united in the Lord Jesus Christ. United but not unified, we have our diversity, better together, as each one of us, being the part of the body that we are, does our bit. Then we will grow and mature into who we want to be, the body of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these great words, these great descriptions and commandments of who we are to be as your body. And Father, we thank you that you have gifted us with each other, that we are a body together with different skills and gifts and circumstances and backgrounds. Father, would you give us fellowship? Would you give us a togetherness in our purpose to build up, to reach maturity, to stand firm in you. And Father, we ask this all the more as we see the day of Jesus coming ever, ever closer. We ask it in his name. Amen.